Well, if you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to turn again to Proverbs chapter 12. One of the things I love about the Bible and God is the fact that uh, when God gets something that he really wants to make a point on, he just keeps hammering it. And uh, that's true in much of the Bible, but boy, you really see it in Proverbs. And uh, you know, it's a lot like us. We get a pet peeve about something. That's all we want to talk about. And uh, when God got something that he wants to, it's important to him, he just keeps hammering it every way he can. And we have seen in Proverbs 12, and we'll see again today, uh, that this chapter is dealing with what comes out of our mouth based on our attitude of heart. And I don't know of anything that's more important to get control over than your mouth. And of course, the key to controlling your mouth is getting control of your heart or giving God control of your heart. And I've taught you that in dealing with people and dealing with life and circumstances that uh, we learn a great principle. And that great principle is basically uh, attitude versus action. And we've talked about it many, many times. You know, the attitude we develop about something will always produce the action. And if we develop the wrong attitude about something based on bad information or wrong information, or something that somebody gave us that's totally erroneous and totally not true, and we take that and build our attitude on it, then we will, we will uh, have an action based on that attitude. A lot of people will hear somebody say about somebody that they don't like, and they'll say all kinds of things that are maybe not true or, or weighted one way to make them look bad, and that person will take what that person says, and they'll develop the same attitude toward that person. So attitudes we develop will always produce an action, whether it be good or whether it bad. And then out of that attitude comes what we say. And in the book of Proverbs, our theme has been, at least one of them, but the main theme has been a wise man. And, uh, and we've talked about the good fruit that comes forth from his mouth and the satisfying effect that it has uh, on us and the people that we give it to. And that's based on him developing the right attitude, uh, you know, and then getting the right action that comes out of it based on his attitude of heart. Then the book of Proverbs, and throughout the whole Bible too, talks about a foolish man, one who transgresses with his lips. One who, uh, you know, we talked about the word transgression last week. We, it means to move beyond the principle, to literally run it over and pay no attention to it. And here the man has the wrong attitude, so we see the wrong action based on his wrong attitude of heart. This is what a foolish man does. He can completely forsakes the Bible principles with absolutely no regard for its truth or its impact on what it's going to do to him or what it may do to anybody else. And today we're going to be right back where we were last week with just a little different twist on it, but God is hammering home a great point uh, in verses 15 and 16, and we're just taking it a little step further. Let's read it. Proverbs chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. It says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. A fool's wrath is presently known, but a prudent man covereth shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. We thank you for all the good things that you do for us. We thank you for the great people that you put into our church. We thank you, Father, for the, for the Word of God that you provided for us. And, and Lord, how many, so many people here love it and love you and just want to be everything that uh, you want them to be. And we thank you, Father, 
for our time this morning. And Lord, we thank you that you'll take the word of God and touch our hearts and touch our lives. And we'll give you all the honor and the glory and praise in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, today we're going to look at two really practical verses. And uh, as you go through these Proverbs and as you go through life, I'm sure as we've talked about a wise man and a foolish man, all of us probably, if we take anything to heart, we could all look at our life, people we associate with, people that we know, and we all can put people into these categories of, yeah, boy, I know a guy like that, or yeah, I know a guy that's like that, or a gal like that. And you see how Proverbs really lays out the way people are and shows you and shows us why uh, they are the way they are. And it's not enough in understanding people just to label them as a fool or wise. But the real key is understanding why they got to be wise or a fool. And I've said many times, no other book in the Bible does what Proverbs does on such a continual basis. It reveals uh, who we really are by what we say and what we do. And no other, book in the Bi- uh, no other book in the Bible, though the Bible does it as a whole, but you talk about Proverbs defining us. Because the theme of Proverbs is you're either going to come out a wise man or you're going to come out a foolish man. And verse 15 starts off by saying this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Now we know that doctrinally, just so we keep it all straight here, we know that doctrinally this fool will be the people uh, who follow the Antichrist in the tribulation period, most generally the nation of Israel. We found in Matthew chapter 25 that the nation of Israel is split into a, a, a segment of ten, and five, five virgins were wise and five were foolish. That's Israel, and that goes right along with Proverbs. And in the Old Testament, you see uh, scores of examples of this, uh, that happens to Israel in its historical perspective. When you think about the book of Judges, the book of Judges is a time where the Bible says that Israel is pretty much run by fools. The theme of the book of Judges is that there's no king in Israel and every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. That's what the verse said. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. And boy, you see it all the way through Judges. Doesn't change much. Gets better for a little while under David. But then after Solomon's demise, from Solomon up to Second Chronicles chapter 36, uh, we see it coming up again, all the fools that are on the throne, right up to the deportation and the captivity of the nation of Israel. So we know that doctrinally it's dealing with the tribulation, but in, historically it's dealing with Israel's history. In the book of Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul uh, uses a great illustration and gives us a great verse that really shows us not only Israel, but really sets a pattern for, for every fool. And he says in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and what you see here is Paul's talking about his tremendous burden for the nation of Israel, for them to be saved and to trust Christ. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now that's a perfect picture of Israel as a fool. We're looking at it in Proverbs from a historical standpoint and a doctrinal standpoint. 
Israel as a self-righteous fool who has forsaken the righteousness of God and went on to establish their own self-righteousness and the mess that it's got them in. The time frame for all of this will basically be Kings and Chronicles in a large segment of the Old Testament from Solomon to Zedekiah. But also you will see this in people today. I've told you many, many times, and we've talked about it many, many times, about the parallels between the nation of Israel and Christianity. And you see these exact same principles coming into Christianity. You also see it coming into the world. In the ministry, you will deal with it all the time. In my life in the ministry of 40-plus years, I've had tens of thousands of people that have had the opportunity to do what's right. We think about our little world here and what we do here. My life spans back in preaching and teaching and working with people for 40-some years. And during that period of time, I can tell you there have been tens of thousands of people who heard the preaching of the Word of God or came to a Bible study, and they had the opportunity, thousands of them, to do right in their lives, and most would not do it. And I've told you many times that in dealing with people, You want to learn the patterns that people follow. It's not complicated. Somebody says, well, I want to really work with people. It's one of the things we do in the people ministry. We basically started at the beginning of the Bible, and I started laying out every pattern that's in the Bible of how people and why people do what they do. And if you really want to learn people, then you've got to learn the patterns of human nature. And it's not very complicated. But it takes some time to get them down, and this will be the key. The Bible lays out all the character traits of every person on this planet, and everybody may be different, tall, different ethnic group. They may be short. They may be heavy. They may be slim. They may be whatever. But the bottom line is they all follow the same patterns. Dealing with people is not that all that different from really going hunting. And uh, most of you guys that know hunting, deer season's coming up in the fall here, and, and you guys are going this next week, aren't you, huh? Going to go bow hunting, okay? Now, these guys are young guys, and they like to get out there and hunt. We got some seasoned hunters here, so they know what I'm talking about. But uh, when you go out to hunt deer or turkey season's coming in here in a, probably a month or so, you don't just walk out in the woods and yell, hey, turkeys! See, that's not what you do. If you want to get a bird or you want to get, uh, uh, if you want to get a deer, you've got to spend some time learning their habitat. You've got to follow their patterns. If you go deer hunting, you'll get out there long before the season and you'll see where they have rubbed their, their heads on, the, on their antlers on the trees and the scrapings on. I guess their head itches, I don't know, but they, they do that. You study their patterns, where they are. At what time of the year? When you go turkey hunting, you don't hunt turkeys in the spring like you do in the fall. In the springtime, you shoot the gobblers. In the fall time, you're allowed to shoot the hen. They have different patterns. One of the things guys will do is go out there and, and they'll, the turkeys will get in the woods and they'll want acorns or something. They'll scratch a circle. So you walk through the woods long before turkey season and you say, there's turkeys all around here because look at the scratchings. If, if you want to if you want to find out where the if you're in the spring, springtime and you want to shoot a gobbler that's a male or in the fall and you don't care and you want to shoot a hen you'll pay attention to turkey droppings 
There's a difference. You can tell the difference between a male turkey and a female turkey by their droppings. You have to taste it. <laughs> There's a difference between the two. When you see that one, you know it's males are around here. When you see this one, you see, no, it's females are around here. You've got to learn their patterns. And you've got to learn where they're at. You've got to learn whether you go in the morning or you go in the late afternoon or, or why don't you go in the afternoon. And all of those things are very important. They're patterns. And when you do that, you're probably going to get one. You just walk in the woods and say, well, I'm out here to hunt a turkey. I'm out here to get a deer and walk through the woods. You know what? You're not going to see anything. Well, a study of human nature is just like that. And it's absolutely necessary to find out the patterns of people that you learn to work with, then based on their patterns, find out where they're at in the woods of life and the struggles that they have. Now, for a fool, this is basically today going to be a class on uh, understanding fools 101. It takes you right back to the basic. For a fool, there will be just three basic fundamental patterns that you'll want to look for. It's not complicated. Uh, Everything else will, you know, go back to these three that you see. And fools come in two flavors. You'll find people who are saved that are fools, and you'll find people who are unsaved that are fools. Now, when you find these three in a person's life, you know that what you're dealing with. There's no question about it. You're going to find out in dealing with people that there are people that come into your world and come into your life that you're not going to be able to help. There's going to be people that when they come in, I can I know because I know patterns that before I ever do anything with them, listen to me, I can tell you with almost a 99% accuracy, they're not going to make it. They're just not. Now, that sounds harsh, but you know what? In life, a lot of reality is harsh. Some people have a tough time with saying things like that, but I didn't say you didn't help them. I didn't say you don't do everything in your power and give them the very best to help them. But what I'm saying is, and what most people don't realize through lack of experience, that some patterns you put in your life, you don't break them after a while. And I've seen people that wanted to do right and came to church and wanted to do this, and they never make it. They can't stay with it. They keep failing, and they'll fail all of their lives, no matter who you put with them. You can put a 1,000 people around them, and they'll fail every time because there's some patterns that are very hard to break. And you give yourself over to them, and you don't break them. They break you, but you don't break them. So there's things that you learn. Now, let's look at these three areas here. Now, the first one will be, and this is what you want to look for, is what we've talked about so far with Israel, and that will be self-righteousness. And you want to remember this. Self-righteousness is the first and primary way of a fool. Always will be. And the root of self-righteousness is pride, which leads to arrogance. And it will produce what our verse says in verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. With Christians who are fools, they will replace the clear principles of God with their own version of it that keeps God out and leaves them in charge of any situation. Yet they'll claim all the time how much they love God and what God is doing for them. When you understand the principles, you realize that that's not how God works. 
We see it in unsaved people, justifying their lives and no need of salvation. We've all dealt with them. Hear it all the time. You try to win somebody to Christ and tell them that Christ died for them, and what do you get back? Well, I've never killed anybody. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I had a lady one time I tried to win to Christ, and she went through her whole family telling me why she was better. She laid out every dirty detail about her uncle, her dad, her mom, her sisters, her brothers. She she just could never get to the place that she was a sinner because she was better than all of them. I've heard them say, well, I worship God my own way. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, I understand that, but you need to go to church to be a good Christian. I've had a guy, I got a friend of mine in Ohio. I go to breakfast with him. I love him to death. He goes all the way back to my early years when I worked at the Hoover Company. He was my supervisor. And I love him to death, but he's as lost as can be. And every time I go to Ohio, we go to spend the morning together, and we go to breakfast together, and he just loves this, me, and I love him very much. And I've witnessed to him, and I'll tell you what, his answer is, is the fact, and he is, the, he is the, one of the nicest guys on the planet. And his answer is, you know, Bob, I can be out in the woods or I can be out fishing and be just as close to God as you can in church on Sunday morning. And that may be true. But you see, that don't get you to heaven. But that's man's self-righteousness trying to come to the point and all of that, that my righteousness is as good as God's son's righteousness. You imagine how that must sound to God who sent his son down and watched him agonize on the cross and die on the cross, and he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God turned his back on him and let all the world and the devil tear him apart and, and, and cast him in hell for three hours to pay for the sin debt of the whole world. And then he said, Now if you take my son's righteousness, after all that he did, I'll save you. And some pipsqueak looking at God and saying, Well, you know what, God? My own righteousness is as good as your son's. Well, that great white throne is going to be a barn burner. Yet you're going to be the barn. You see, he substitutes the righteousness of God with his own righteousness. And boy, after 30 or 40 years, that's tough to change. We all have seen them, fools that are experts in everything. I've, I've got, guys, no matter what you talk about, what subject, there's somebody who does it better than everybody else. I'm the best hunter. Well, I got four fish down here. Well, I caught a lot more fish than you. I'm a great fisherman. I'm the best singer. Oh, I, well, she was really good. Oh, yeah, I sing that song and I, I, a lot better than that. We had a guy here one time, and some of you remember this kid. You remember him? <laughs> he, he fancied himself being a cook. Now, he, they had us up to dinner one night and uh, when we first started coming to church. They didn't last very long. But they, they brought us up to, and I'm glad by the way he cooked. Anyway, <laughs> but he brought us up there. And all I heard all night long, all I heard all night long was the fact that he was the greatest cook in the world. He, he told me, and he, I think he told you too, John, because John tried to disciple him, uh, but he never could get past his self-righteousness, could he, John? And he was the best cook on the planet. He told me, now, now, you can tell me a lot of things and I'll believe it, but I was in the Army. And he told me that when he was in basic training, they came and pulled him out of basic to go cook for the President of the United States. 
Well, I know one thing. If he cooked that chicken con blue we had that night, whatever it was, that's some rough stuff, boy. You know, it's bad when I got to stop at Taco Bell afterward to get something to eat. Burger King, a little more down the road to take care of that, and then ice cream to smooth it all on top. Hey, I've seen them where we're in a conversation, and you talk about what you're doing, and they'll bust right into your conversation. And they'll start just taking over the conversation and start telling you, well, how good they've done that. And that wasn't your point. You were just laying out what you did, but they just can't, they cannot stand for you to not know that they're the best at what they do. You also see it with God's people, saved people, Christians. Hey, some of the most self-righteous people I ever met were people that, in my opinion, were saved and on their way to heaven. You see it in pastors. You see it in deacons and trustees and finance committee members, especially in those old dead Baptist churches that have been in existence for a thousand years. Nobody ever comes. It's a bunch of old people. It looks like a dinosaur graveyard on Sunday morning. But these guys have been entrenched in power in those churches forever. Then their attitude is complete superiority over everything. And I mean, you don't. I, I, I remember as a kid. Back at the Canton Baptist Temple, I was just a little guy. And I was goofy. Okay, I get that. But there was a deacon there that didn't like me from whenever. I don't know why. But I remember as a little kid, they had this long hallway. And I walked over there. You know what? I'm a goofy kid. And I turned the light switch on and off and it shut down the lights in the whole corridor. And I turned them off. I thought that was a big deal. Cool, man. Turned them back on again. Then I decided I'll leave them off. Turned them off. I turned around and there was Marshall Bennett, the deacon. He'd been a deacon since the Civil War. He grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and he said, you know what? He says, you just burned up your whole little offering today that you put into church by turning off that light, turning off that switch. I was pretty stupid. I wasn't even being smart, but I was, I said I was too honest. I looked up and said, well, sir, I didn't put anything in the offering. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy, man. And they'll always live by two sets of rules. One for you and one for themselves. They will exclude themselves from the same rules that they want to have you to follow and then to make up their own rules for themselves. And you know what? Honestly, many times this is why people turned off and don't want to go to church. I get it. I understand it. I get it. And and basically, uh, they live a life of absolute denial for 30, 40 years. And it gets you in time. And your whole life becomes a sham based on who you think you are, who you're really not. You know, the older I get, the less I want to hide things. I mean, valuable things. When I go on a trip, you know, we always put in things, places where if somebody breaks in the house while you're not there, that they won't find it. I hate doing that because I forget where I put them. I'm terrible with, with passwords. I'm terrible with key codes. 
I call AT&T to get some work done on my cell phone. They ask me for my password. I don't know. Can you give me a hint? They made it real easy for me because they'll let you pick a key thing like the street you were lived on when you were growing up or your dog's first name. I forgot that. (laughs) The older I get, I can't remember where I put the good stuff that I didn't want somebody to steal. And you know, in a spiritual sense, the more you forsake the Bible, the good stuff, you'll come to a place in your life where you can't find the good stuff anymore can't remember where you put it you forsook it and you built your whole life on self-righteousness and now there comes a time in your life when you really need the good stuff but you can't remember where you put it if you all get a safe the safest place you got is thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee that'd be a good place to start now the second characteristic will be their self-serving life and everything in life will be about them They'll love things more than they love the things of God. Things for them. Things that they think make them happy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 talks about these folks when it says they're lovers of their own selves. I knew a guy one time that everybody that was his friends was afraid he'd never get married because we'd never find anybody that loved him as much as he did. And I've seen it where you get to that point where in your life that it's all about you. And in many times, not every case, but in, boy, a lot of cases, they'll always have some drama going on. You know what I'm talking about? There'll be some drama always going on in their life. Every time you see them, some drama that casts them into the spotlight. Some drama that's going on that, that you know, that, that gives them the center of attention. And when they, don't, when they don't have real drama, they make drama up. Now, in ministry, let me change gears here for a minute. In ministry, this is the danger of what we call megachurches today. <clears throat> this is why, based on <clears throat> the Bible, a church probably, based on the Word of God, should never get past about 400, 500 people. Say, how do you accomplish that? Oh, that's easy. You just preach the book, and that'll keep everything in check. But when you do hit four or 500, then the church is ready to split off and, and reproduce itself. But that's the model in the Bible. In modern church history, in modern times, from the 1950s on, uh, no mega church ever survived. Hey, I grew up in the era of the big churches. Akron Baptist Temple ran 10,000 on Sunday morning. Jack Kyle's over there in Indiana rent 20, he ran 20,000 in his church. And you know what that did? It became a pride thing. And it gave birth to the Sunday school campaign where you try to top other churches. You try to have the biggest crowds you can have. So you, can, you have friend day. Bring all your friends. You have Heaven Sunday. Bring all your people and talk about heaven because people want to know about heaven. It's all gimmicks. I used to sit in those staff meetings when they would put those up and I'd say, how about a Hell Sunday? That'd be a good one. I come up one time with a... a, 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 They loved it. I was joking. They loved it. 
and it was a competition between another church someplace out there. They were running close to us, so we had an eight-week Sunday school campaign going on where whoever won, the majority of them, the pastor had to fly out there and present the trophy. Oh, it was a big deal. They loved it. And I said, what it'll be, it'll be God against the devil. They thought that was great. If we meet our goal, God wins. If we don't meet our goal, the devil wins. Pastor loved it because he could get up there and embellish the people. Don't you let the devil win. How embarrassing it will be. Oh, he worked the angles. Devil beat his six Sundays out of eight. Ridiculous. Those churches are all gone now. Akron Baptist Temple probably runs maybe eight or 900. Jack Hiles' church, it's down to probably, if you take the school out of it, he's probably down there. They're all gone. They're all gone because they were all built with the wrong motive. They were built to have great numbers, great buildings that you could say, look what we've done. That you could brag at the fellowship meetings. But I want to tell you from the practical side, you get 1,000 people, 2,000 or 3,000 people, and your pastor cannot minister to that many people effectively. And it ceases now to become a church. And most churches today, they don't even look, make it, they don't even look at themselves as a church anymore. They look at themselves as a business. I don't know how many big churches I know and have been associated with that the pastor is now looked at as a CEO. And he gets four or five personal assistants. They fill his car up with gas. They do every little thing that he needs. So he can stay and stay focused on what? I'm not sure. So now they have to hire 20, 30 other pastors to do the job of the pastor. And the pastor's out of a job. Oh, he still gets paid, but now he's taking himself out of the number one job of a pastor. That's your people. Any pastor anywhere has one thing that he's responsible for. That is every person sitting in that chair this morning. There's no other, no other, no other priority in a pastor's life should be than that. You don't worry about the building. You don't worry about the carpet, obviously. You don't worry about the, you worry about the people. The key to a church will be the pastor and his attitude about his people. So you lose touch with them. You're now isolated from them. Oh, you go out and preach on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night in some cases, but man, Monday through Saturday, you're unapproachable. I've known pastors who like to preach but hated people. And in time, you really start to believe that you're really that important. And the God syndrome sets in. The pastor's unapproachable. The pastor's untouchable. The pastor is somebody that we talk about, oh, there he goes. (sighs) When we meet him in the hallway, oh, we don't know what to do. Our stomach flitters, whatever that means. The God syndrome, that he thinks that he's above everybody. He expects to be treated differently. 
He, 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 he wants all the adoration of everybody around him. You know where that comes from? That's Isaiah 14, 14. I will be like the most high God, Lucifer said. Now, instead of being a pastor that serves his people, now you're a pastor who the people serve you. You're a king. You're a king like Philip II, Peter the Great, or Lord Godfrey. Now you violated the basic biblical principles of pastoring found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, where it says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples unto them. You see that? An ensample and an example are two different things. I've told you before. An example is something that you do, but an ensample is something that you are. He's saying that a pastor should be an ensample. Yeah, he should be an example, but before that, he should be an ensample of what you are. He's supposed to embody what Christianity is supposed to be. And I know every pastor is imperfect, and if you follow him around long enough, you'll see all kinds of holes in his character. But, you know, the bottom line is simply this. He's to be an ensample. But, oh, now the God syndrome sets in. I knew a guy one time who was a doctor, and he was a, he was a Christian psychologist. This kid was the stupidest kid on the planet when it came to helping people. And... Uh, uh, I spent a, quite a bit of time with him, and he, we had a mutual relationship, and I, didn't, I always thought he was an idiot, and he, he didn't probably care much for me. We talked about the Bible many, many times. He's the guy that told me one time that he believed that the Bible contained truth, but just that the Bible did not contain all truth. That's where he was coming from. I'd go to lunch with him, and he'd, 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 Come in there, and he'd tell the lady at the, you know, at the front, how many, two? And he'd say, yes. He says, my name is Dr. So-and-so, and we'd like to have two, me and him going to lunch. And then as she went away, he would say, oh, by the way, I am Dr. So-and-so. If I would get any calls, would you please let me know immediately? Nobody's going to call him. <laughs> he wanted to project that he was a doctor. He wanted her to know. He wanted the people around to know. He wanted her to go back and say, oh, Dr. So-and-so is sitting over here. He's right over down through here. If he gets any calls for Dr. So-and-so, make sure he gets them because he's a doctor. What a clown. <laughs> but that's what happens, you see. Oh, yeah, now you're a reverend. Unfortunately, when you get ordained, they, the reverend comes with it. But I've watched these guys. They put it under checks. They put it on a driver's license. They put a little name tag, reverend. Because they think it means something. They think it means because you're a reverend, you're more spiritual. Because you revere in, now somebody is going to reverence you. And then they get really puffed up when they get the doctor's degree. You know what a theological doctor degree is? It's called a DD, a doctor of divinity. Oh, would you like to have one of those? And I want to tell you something. <clears throat> now, maybe this is just me, but I think that's a joke. You and I are godless, rotten sinners who need to die and deserve to die in hell. Amen. You're saved by the grace of God on the cross of Calvary. Amen. And then you're going to go through life as a dirty, rotten, saved sinner, <clears throat> 
putting behind your name a doctor of divinity like there's something divine about who you are? Boy, you got it bad, kid. A degree makes you more like Christ? And, and, and I've heard all the rationalization. Don't even go there with me. I've had it, heard it for years. Well, we don't really like these, but when we get these and we take these, oh, it opens up all kinds of doors that we wouldn't have if we didn't have a doctor behind our name. Well, gee whiz, folks. I thought it was God's Holy Spirit job to open the doors. I think I read that someplace. And a great joke. You know, God's got the greatest sense of humor you ever saw. If you don't believe it, just look in the mirror. I mean, it's a great. <laughs> the Laodicean church. We are living in a world that has thousands and thousands of doctors, religious doctors. And yet the church of Jesus Christ is the most disease-ridden, sickly, weakling church you've ever seen in your life. This church doesn't need any more doctors. The church doesn't need any more doctors. You know what it needs? It needs some combat medics. That's what it needs. But they ain't going to get it. Old Kansas farmer one time. Never got out of the sixth grade. But he farmed all of his life. And his brother lived in the city and had a nephew. And this nephew was a really smart kid. He had five degrees. Been in colleges all over the country. One of the smartest men you'd ever met in your life. He called his uncle out in Kansas, the farmer, and said, would you take me camping? And the old farmer said, well, sure, I'll take you camping. Come on down. So he comes down there to, you know, out there in the Flint Hills, man, it's beautiful. So they're out there, you know, camping at night. And in the middle of the night, the farmer shakes him and he says, look up and tell me what you see. He says, I see millions and millions and millions of stars. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. What does those stars tell you? He says, well, astronomically, it tells me that there's millions and millions of galaxies out there. Meteorologically, it tells me it's going to be a wonderful, beautiful day tomorrow. And he says, you know, he says, when I look at it in all of the different ways, it gives me so much information. He says, Uncle, how do you look at it? Uncle looked at it and he says, somebody stole our tent. <laughs> now, the third characteristic of a fool will be... <clears throat> Now, keep in mind, it's a little revising here. We, we, we saw our verse, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. First, we saw he's self-righteous. Then we saw that he's self-serving, number two. And then the third thing is he's self-sufficient. In other words, you can't teach a fool anything. He's unteachable. He knows it all. And when you hit this level and it comes full circle, in most cases, 99% of it of the time, you're unable to change. The roots are down too deep. And let me say this. I'm not necessarily talking about some loud, obnoxious bully. Many of them are. But hey, I've seen these three areas in some of the most passive, quiet, meek people you ever met in your life. 
Some are of great conviction, brother. Some are very legalistic. Some wear the right clothes, don't go to certain restaurants, don't do this, don't do that. Oh, they're so godly. And they're some of the nicest people you ever met, right up to the point that they're faced with doing it the Bible way against their way, and then, brother, look out. I mean, they're so spiritual. I've known pastors that's always bothered me how they ever baptized anybody because when they go down to baptism, they just walk on the water. <laughs> they project such a falsehood of spirituality. You can't teach them anything. Over the years, in every pastor's ministries, you find people just like that. I mean, every pastor has every church has them. Young men and moms and dads and ladies who simply can't, you can't teach anything to. Totally unteachable. They get a little bit of Bible under their belt, you know, and then they want to do something for God, and brother, that's it. You can't give them anything. I mean, uh, or in some cases, they're just uh, so completely dysfunctional on the basics of life that they can't get anywhere. They hear a message like this, and all they do right now, if they're hearing it, whatever church they're in, is they're looking around in their mind, pointing out in their mind who he's preaching to, and they never make the application back to themselves. They completely reject any advice or constructive criticism to show them the right way. They think they know all they need to know, and in fact, they know nothing. And they just make a mess out of it. A couple of Thursday nights ago, I don't know how we got on it, but I told you about a, a kid that I had in my ministry 30-some years ago. Now, this kid was a nice kid. He was a good kid, but you couldn't teach him a thing. He always knew more about it than anybody else. I don't care what it was. And he went to, he, you know, he wanted to go out and start a church over 30 years ago. And I told him then, and I would tell him today, he's not a pastor. I mean, he didn't have any of the things that he needed, but I mean, I mean, he couldn't preach a lick. I ain't telling you. Sitting in your backyard, listening to the grass grow was much more exciting than him preaching. And that's being generous. But oh, you couldn't tell him anything. God called him. God called him. God called him. So he went out and started his church some 30 years ago. And I told him then, he'd go to my people and he'd say, you know, God's taught me some things that he's really never given to Bob. And he thinks, God showed me things that he's never shown him. And I have a deeper understanding about it. You know that old Absalom at the gate syndrome thing back in the Old Testament. He went out and started his church over 30 years ago. And today, after 30 years, he's probably running 10 to 12 to 15 after 30 years. And half that's his family. He could haul roll call in a 1963 VW bus this morning. I'm not sure what God showed him that he didn't show me, but I'm sure glad God didn't show it to me. What a joke. And you know what? After 30 years of failure... 30 years of never getting anybody to come to your church that wanted to be part of it. He still will not admit that he failed and made a mistake. He'll just keep blaming it on everything else and insist that he's the only one who has the truth. You know why? Pride. Self-righteousness. He's self-serving. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16 talked about the seven things that God hates. And the one of them that's the worst is the, is the sowing discord among the brethren. But number one, with the number one problem with the devil, was the first sin in the Bible. It was a proud look. And when they get that proud, pride, arrogant attitude, you can't teach them a thing. 
It's been 30 years since that kid went out and it taught me a great lesson about foolish people. And I've told it to you before. Make no bones about it. Somebody comes in to me and says, tells me what they want to do. Don't include me in it. Don't ask my advice. Just walk in and say, you know what? I want to go do this or I want to go to the mission field or I want to go do this or I want to go do that and I just want you to put my ble- your blessing on it and they've never talked to me about it. They've never spent any time with me. Haven't seen him in my church for six or seven or eight months. Hey, you want my blessing? Hail Mary, Mother of God, flew to the room. You got it, brother. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. Now you want to come in and talk to me, be part of my work and let me help you and show me what God's doing and prove it by doing it in my church? You got my full attention. And that's the way you got to handle it. You know why? Proverbs twelve fifteen: the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. You're not going to change it. Now look at the last part of that verse, verse 15. But he that hearkeneth the counsel is wise. Now, getting wise counsel before you make a major move in life is always a smart thing to do. The counsel here in this passage is the counsel of Proverbs 125, 130, 814, 1114, other places. The principles of the Word of God, the counsel of the Word of God, doing it by the book. So you learn from those who have been successful at it those who have already paid the price of learning and made the mistakes and had the failures of what you're trying to do and have learned from them and then God has blessed them and they become successful. That's how you learn. Now, I, I, what I'm about to say, I want you to listen very carefully. I know that there's no shortcut, no short, no fast track to learning the Bible and ministry. I got that. But you know, yet in one sense there is. You watch and learn and take good advice and counsel from somebody who knows what he's doing. That's what I did. It took me 20, 30 years to learn some of the things that I give you. We talk about when you start to deal with people with problems, you're never, you're never smarter than the problem. You never, treat, you never treat the symptom. You'll always deal with the problem. We talked earlier about attitude versus action. I've told you before about, uh, you know, responding to something versus the reacting to something. You know how many years I had to watch that in play? You know how many years I spent watching that happen, observing it, dealing with it, taking all the pieces, taking them apart, and putting them back together? I talked earlier about learning the basic patterns of human nature. You know how long that took me to do that? Learning the Bible, doctrinally, inspirationally, historically. It took me 30 years, and I still just scratched the surface. You have no idea how long it took for me to see those things, get those things down, observe those things, understand them, and most important things. It took most of my adult life. And my job as a pastor is to make sure that if you're serious with the Word of God, it doesn't take you nearly as long. You benefit from it. You get past all of the quicker, you know, quicker, 20 or 30 years quicker. You can get ahead faster. You still got to do the work. But that's my job. That's the only job of a pastor. By reproducing what I've learned into somebody who wants to learn. You go back to that bookstore and you know what? I don't sell my books on Zondervan. You can't go online and get them. 
You won't go into your Christian bookstore and say, where are all the volumes by Bob Alexander? You won't find them there. You know why? I never designed to put them there. I never laid that stuff out. John never took that stuff that I've done and put it out for anybody other than you. How to study the Bible. Charismatic movement. Bible notes. History in the Bible. Church history. Marriage and divorce. Child training. The Thursday night... uh, Girls sitting in the back, Rose and, and them still back there, Nancy, and they, they take every question and they detail it out. So when you go on the website, you can find exactly what subject you want. The Thursday night Bible studies, the special classes on New Year's, or the special church histories we did on Wednesday night, the people ministry, the single ministry. Just hoping that somebody somewhere will pick up what God has given me and run with it and do something with it before I pass off the scene. That's the job of a pastor. That's what his job is. Taking all that he learned and then making sure that the people that God gave him get a head start on it to get it quicker that you don't have to pay it to get there. Oh, you'll have things you'll have to pay. But to help you get there quicker. I just learned from the people who had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Realizing that a wise man will take and seek counsel from the men who have been there and done it and done it right. In my life, God had put over the years four main men that helped me along the way. And uh, I needed it because I was pretty stupid when I got into the ministry. One taught me the Bible the right way. One taught me the ministry the right way. One taught me the balance between grace and truth the right way. And one taught me how not to do the ministry by doing it the wrong way. And as stupid as I am, I was smart enough to see the value of God putting those men in my life. I learned from them. I gleaned from their experience. Spending time with them, asking them questions about ministry, about people, about churches, about history, about the old boys that they knew. You hear me talk about J. Frank Norris. I never met J. Frank Norris. He died before I was even born. But I spent a lot of time with his boys, the ones that he trained. I'd sit down with them and ask them all about, what was it like being under J. Frank Norris? Tell me the good things. Tell me the bad things. Tell me everything you can remember, the positive and the negative. I wanted to learn everything I could because I knew that those old boys, too, were going to be gone someday, and all that knowledge would be lost. And I always have appreciated them for what they did for me, all of them. I never thought I knew more about the Bible than they did. I never thought I knew more about ministry or building a church than they did. I was too busy absorbing what they had because I knew someday they were going to be gone off the scene and it would all be lost. And I wanted to get whatever I could before they were gone. And today they're all gone. And even after I got into ministry, their their help to me was invaluable. There were times when I got into the ministry all the way out here and I lived back in in Ohio and now I'm out here. There was things that I come up with. Well, I thank God I had two or three guys I could call on the phone and say, hey, look, what do I do with this? How do I help that? Taught me a great lesson. You know what it is? Don't ever burn the bridges of the men that God has put in your life. And not a day goes by in my life that I don't use something that they taught me. I don't fall back on it. Remember what they said. 
Those years of good, solid counsel were invaluable to me. And if I have any success in the ministry today at all, I owe it to them, those men who were patient with me and allowed me to ride on their coattails to learn from their wisdom and from their mistakes. And yet I know how a fool reacts to that. Well, you're just following a man. You're absolutely right, you self-righteous clown. I am. I'm doing it just like Timothy, Philemon, and Titus, and a thousand others followed Paul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also follow of Christ. Every man he says you're following somebody is following somebody. Now that's the biblical process for a wise man. Not never a fool. He knows it all. You can't teach him anything. Follow the man who God put in your life. Follow the man who follows Christ. Learn from him. Glean from him. Watch his success. Watch his mistakes. And let God use it to mold you to make you of who you are. Been that way all down through history. Back in about 100, 200 A.D., there was a guy by the name of Montanus. And when everything started to fall apart and everybody started to go sprinkling babies, old Montanus said, that's not what the Bible teaches. We're sticking with the book. His church separated from all those other churches. And they said, well, why don't you come with us? He said, we're sticking with Montanus in the Bible. He says, oh, you're just following a man. They called his followers Montanus after a man. A little bit later on, I had a guy by the name of Novatius. And he said, hey, all of this stuff of putting a priest class over the lay people, uh-uh, brother, I'm sticking with a book. You guys and me are splitting ways. And they said to his people, why don't you come with us? They said, we're sticking with the man God gave us in the book. And they said, oh, you're just following a man. They called those Novatians. There was a guy by the name of Dante back in the third, fourth century. He wouldn't go along with the corruption split from all of the churches that were going the wrong way and heading toward Rome, and they called his followers Donatists. When John Huss rocked Czechoslovakia against all the established church and everybody hated him, and the people that followed him, they called them Hussites. The Waldensians, the largest Bible-believing group down through the Dark Ages that were persecuted beyond belief, Got their name from Peter Waldo. J. Frank Norris's boys were called Norrisites. Ruckman's followers are called Ruckmanites. And you see the real problem is prideful, self-righteous men. That's his main desire. He wants people to follow him. But he's such a fool that nobody will ever follow him. So he goes around quoting all this false spiritual stuff. You're following a man, following a man. What he's really saying, if you allow me to translate, I don't like people following you because I want them to follow me. And nobody's following me because I'm a fool. Look at verse 16. Here's why nobody follows him. A fool's wrath is presently known. Everybody knows you're a fool. Well, what comes out of your mouth? When you have to transgress with, with your lips and, and slander and lie and tear down others to make yourself look spiritual, good people see right through that. That's why some of your children won't follow their parents. If I can may put it into a practical application, they see the phoniness. You act one way at church and cuss everything out at home. And then you scratch your head and say, I wonder why my boy won't go to church. I wonder why my daughter won't go to church. Because he knows you're a fool. That's why. 
You live two different lives. You have two different value systems. And he's smart enough to see what you're dumb enough not to see. That's why wives won't follow their husband. I don't know how many times the husband said to me, well, she won't follow my leadership. My labs wouldn't follow your leadership. She sees your double standard. She sees your one way here and another way here. And when you say follow me or I'm the spiritual leader, she sees you as a fool. You're ranting and you're raving gives you away. Your wrath, when it is not based on the Bible, but your own personal insecurity or pride or self-righteousness, will betray you every time. I watched Ohio State play this week. Even though I've been in Missouri for well over 40 years, I still like Ohio State. That's where I'm originally from, Ohio. I never watch Ohio State play without thinking of Woody Hayes. Woody Hayes, back in the 60s or the 70s, probably the 70s, was their coach at Ohio State. Woody Hayes had a volatile temper. He would lose it on the field, off the field. I mean, when a play didn't go right, he would absolutely, he looked like a three-year-old not getting his weenie. I mean, he would throw a temper tantrum. What got him fired was one of during a game, one of his players missed the catch in a key thing. When that player come off, took his helmet off, Woody went up and grabbed him and punched him right in the face on national TV. <laughs> That's anger, boy. It wasn't just a... It was, he nailed him, man. Well, obviously, he was fired. He was let go. And every time I watch Ohio State play and I watch... They're a pretty good ball team, and they've had their ups and their downs, like everybody else. But they're a great school, and they're a great team. I always feel sad a little bit. That probably one of the guys who did more in the early years to make that team what it is today, nobody even remembers his name. You know why? Because he was a fool. He was a fool. Made a fool out of himself. Letting a ball game become to the point where he lost his temper on national TV and punched the player. I remember one time, all the pastors up here, Baptist pastors, I didn't do it. I wasn't in their caliber. But they used to play a softball match with all the professors from BBC down in Springfield, the BBF. And they'd get all the teachers down there and all of the staff and all of the pastors that were connected to BBF would have a big big softball tournament up here in Kansas City. And not a year went by. The, the, the last year they had it, it broke into a riot. <laughs> the pitcher was one of the pastors in this city that if I told you who it was, well, you probably wouldn't remember him, but he, had a, he was a pastor up here just south Kansas City. Great preacher, but he had a temper. When it was all over, nobody cared about the score. There were two broken arms, three broken noses, police were called and the whole world looked at the pastors up here in the Baptist Bible Fellowship and what do you think they thought? That's where I'm going to church tomorrow. <laughs> now let me say this. In, in, in the Bible, anger and wrath is okay when it has a cause behind it. 
a biblical one. Matthew 5.25 says that he that is angry with his brother without a cause is guilty before the court. If you've got a right, righteous cause, it's one thing. But a fool will lose it over anything. Now, when he doesn't get his own way, because he's self-serving. You see it in road rage. Somebody pulls in front of you, and you're having a bad morning, and you ram them, in, or you shoot them. There's people get shot just because they pulled out and didn't use a turn signal. I've seen parents cussing out their kids, calling them the filthiest names on the planet, hitting them, smacking them, losing their temper and cussing them out, cussing their wife, calling them filthy names. You're a fool, and your speech betrayeth you. It's no wonder nobody takes these people seriously. Ben Franklin said, explosive anger will always have a reason behind it, but it's just not ever a very good one. Edmund Howe, an American novelist and newspaper editor, 1853 to 1937 said that when people explode in anger, they always say they're not themselves when they do it, when in fact they just have revealed who they really are. Look at the last part of verse 16. But a prudent man covereth his shame. Now, the word prudent is a really good word. Don't hear it much anymore. In fact, most people probably couldn't even tell you what it means. But it means to be cautious. It means to be wise in a practical way, careful of the consequences. It means careful and conscious not to act when the end result is not clearly seen and yet in doubt. A prudent man or woman will see a situation and not react to it, but rather take time to get the facts and respond to it biblically. A prudent man will solve problems because he's a wise man and fruit comes out of his mouth. He works to a solution. He doesn't doesn't cause problems or inflame them to make them worse. When a foolish man will, where a foolish man will tell all he knows through gossip and slander and sow discord, just look at what was on Facebook. Some of the goofiest, stupidest stuff on the planet put out there for everybody to read, and people actually think when I put this on that the only one who's going to see it is the person that I want to see it. The whole world sees it. A wise man, a prudent man will cover it so the cause of Christ will not get hurt. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the ministry. He won't sweep it under the rug. He'll not, he'll not, not deal with it. But he won't let it get outside the smaller circle of the people who are involved. And he works to keep it that way. Because he's got wisdom. He's got understanding in these matters. And he knows that the devil will use people that are wicked and a fool to his advantage to destroy the work of God. So he doesn't think about himself. He doesn't think about his own personal in it. He thinks about what God is doing. So he covers it so that it doesn't hurt the work of Christ. Now, brother, I won't tell you. Those are tremendous verses, but I want to give you one more thought. Now, in this chapter so far, we have seen some of those practical applications of principles on what we, uh, in our heart, and what comes out of our mouth. We've seen the way of a fool, and now we understand the way of a wise man, one who's righteous in his own eyes and knows everything, and one who is not seeking one who is always seeking counsel uh, uh, and, and hearkening to it. A fool will reveal who he really is by his, by his wrath, but a wise, prudent man 
who works at solving problems and keeps issues from getting out of control. You know, for me, the ministry has always been different aspects. But its simplest form, the ministry is just people. And fundamentally, a ministry is simply to those people preaching the truth and staying faithful with the things of God. But as I told you before, <clears throat> you're going to have people come into whatever ministry you have down the line someplace. Someday if you're pastor a church, you're going to have people come through that you see them and you know in the moment they walk in, there are problems and they're probably not going to go very far. But you give them a shot. You do everything you can to try to help them. Never let it be said that you look back and don't have a good conscience about what you tried to do. You may get hosed in the end. You may get abused in the end. But a good conscience toward God covers and overrides all of that stuff. And then you have to wade through the fools of life to get to the wise of life. It's just the way it is. You have to go through the people who won't change and learn and apply what they're getting in their life to get to the ones who will. In any church, you can see the difference immediately between the fools and the wise men. You see a difference in their marriage. You see a difference in their children. You see a difference in their attitudes. You see a difference in the ministry they do. You see a difference in their relationships. You see a difference in their value systems. And that's true of just about everything in life. You have to go through a lot of foolish things to get to the good. You know, I was out uh, Bass Pro the other day looking around, and I walked over there in one section, and I couldn't believe it. There was selling pans that you pan for gold, you know, like in the old days. And I asked the guy, I said, you really sell these? And he says, oh, it's really a big thing now. He says, people buy them, go out west. He says, people find a little you know, gold is so high. People find a gold. Uh, you know, going out there. You know, I don't know if you know it, uh, what they do, but you go out there and you get, you get a, you, a, a river coming down there. You stick your pan down there and get a little water and a lot of dirt, and you just shake it around and shake it around. Nothing. You get some more. You might go through five or ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty pans before you find a nugget. And I thought to myself when he told me that, I said, you know, that's just like the ministry. Sometimes you got to go through a lot of dirt to find one gold nugget. You know, in farming, you've got to go through a lot of tares to get to the wheat. You know, in farming, you've got to get all the husks before you get to the corn. In coal mining, you've got to dig a couple of tons of dirt before you hit the coal vein. In a diamond mine, you've got to move tons of rock just to find one diamond. And it's true in life. It's true in ministry. Going and giving chances to people who won't change, but you got to go through all of them to find the one who will. And that one makes it worth it all. Guy doesn't look back and say, I shoveled 20 tons of dirt today. He focuses on, whoa, look at the nugget I found. Well, I was digging down there and I dug for 20 hours and I'm so tired. No, no, no. Whoa, look at the diamond I found. That's the ministry. You got to go through a lot of foolish people, but what makes it worth it all is when you find that nugget of gold. It takes all your minds off the ones that don't want to learn when you have one who does. And you people who work with people know that's exactly the way it is. You can have three zeros, 
You get a little down about it. You get a little frustrated about it. But then God gives you that golden nugget that falls out of heaven right in your lap. And about three weeks into that, you even don't even know who the other ones were anymore. You know why? You know why it makes it worth it all? I'll tell you why. Because Proverbs 10.1 says, A wise son maketh a glad father. That's why. You as a spiritual father makes you glad, but it makes your heavenly father glad. But the Bible says, Proverbs 7.25, A fool's son is a grief to his father. Proverbs 19.13, A foolish son is a calamity to his father. I always think of Solomon. Had a thousand wives. And in Son of Solomon chapter 1 and Proverbs 31, he goes through all of those thousand wives to find one virtuous woman. And when he finds her, after looking at 999, he finds the one he says her price is far above rubies. Now, one time did he complain about all the other ones because he finally had found the one that he was looking for. And let me tell you something. In the ministry, you're going to have a lot of fools that don't go anywhere. But when you find that one who has the virtue, that has the gold, that wants to learn and wants to know, it makes it worth it all. I think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Lord went through 12 apostles to find one who would go all the way with him. John. And that's the ministry. You go through the fools of life with a nugget that just wants the truth of God. And then you just pour yourself into it. That's what God made you for. What God designed churches for. What the pastor's job is. And when a pastor translates out to everybody else and everybody starts mining for gold, you start finding a lot of nuggets. I can go out all day long and I could work all day and find one little nugget. If I send 150 of you out, we find more than one nugget. The more people panning for gold, not worrying about the dirt you got to go through to get to it, the more nuggets you find. That's how you build a church. That's how you build a ministry. One person at a time. But you got to go through the ones who don't want to learn to find the ones who do want to learn. That's what makes the ministry work. And that's what makes it rewarding, not only here, but at the judgment seat of Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for its great principles. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us.